This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always mas. This is Tony Diaz, a libro traficante, author of The Tip of the Pyramid, Cultivating Community Cultural Capital, and you are joining another multi-platform broadcast of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say on the air, and tonight you're going to experience a fantastic writer. He's on the screen with me right now. I want to say hi to him and, and uh, give, give him a big high five and a hug and then give you a more formal introduction in a little bit. However, uh, we're joined by Ito Romo today. Ito, thank you so much for joining us and looking forward to, to you reading on the air tonight and then reading in person at the Latino Bookstore. Bienvenidos. Muchas gracias, Tony. Thank you so much for including me. I, I really appreciate it. And I, I'm really looking forward uh, to our conversation uh, tonight and then again to the reading at the uh, Guadalupe um, Bookstore. Really happy to be here. Thank you. So Houston and San Antonio have it going on for Latino literature. We're so happy that Ethan will form part of the Texas Authors Series. So as you know, in 2023, any second Friday of the month, we've got a great event going on at the Latino Bookstore at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center. I'm proud to serve as the literary curator. It is totally free, and Ito will form part of that legacy and history on the second Friday of September, September 8th, 6 p.m. As I mentioned, it's totally free. And I also want to tell you more about a dear friend. He was born and raised on the border in Laredo, Texas. And his work has been dubbed Chicano Gothic and Chicano Noir. He shows the dark and gritty life along Interstate 35 through South Texas, where his family has lived for nine generations. He's the author of The Border is Burning. We are celebrating the release of the softcover version, and that's a big part of what we'll be celebrating on September 8th at the Latino Bookstore. But do not be too sad if you missed that reading. So if you tune in, you'll know that that book will be available and in stock at your Latino Bookstore, so you can go in at any time during business hours. Uh, additionally, he's also the author of El Puente, the Bridge, published by the University of New Mexico Press, and in German by Europa Verlag is Der Duft der Mulberin. I don't know how to say it either. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> and he's received both a BA and MA in English from St. Mary's University and a PhD in English from Texas Tech University's Creative Writing Program. He lives in San Antonio and is an associate professor of English and Communication Studies at St. Mary's University, where he teaches creative writing, Mexican-American literature, and multicultural literature. But I want to remind folks, he is down to earth of the community, even though he's one of our leading scholars. Ito, congratulations on the soft cover version of your book coming out. And congratulations on all you've done. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I, I, I hope I can live up to all that praise. That <laughs> <just given me. laughs> and I tell you what, we chatted a little bit 
what I asked you to do would be to read an excerpt. It's actually going to be from a piece that I got to hear in person at the Versos Fronteras, which is organized by Octavio uh, Quintanilla uh, at Our Lady of the Lake University. And why don't you tell us the title, um, the name of the, the full work again, mm-hmm. give you a little bit, and then I can't wait to have you read it for us. Thank you. So the story I'm about to read is called Baby Money, and it is from uh, The Border is Burning. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting story because it's what we call a braided story, which means it's two stories going on at the same time. And um, you'll see when, when one story meets the other. Baby money. Many, many years ago, when I was just 13 years old, I saw the two-headed baby floating in its jar of formaldehyde at the carnival by the river on the American side. I threw up. Right there and then, in the middle of the tent, in front of all my friends, as we listened to the man with a microphone barking the baby's sad story in his eerie voice. My friends all thought I threw up because we had just been on the Tilt-A-Whirl. And then the second story starts here. The water crawled over the banks of the Rio Grande into her home so suddenly that she had to hoist her two small children onto her shoulders and wade out the rising water to higher ground. The children clapped and cheered for the tumultuous growing river and rain hitting their faces and soaking their old torn t-shirts and shorts. Soon, the river was once again at their feet. She cried. Anger and jealousy raced through her veins. Bending down, she filled her cupped hand with river water and raised it to her forehead in the sign of the cross, letting some flow down onto her lips. She asked the river to be kind to their home, grabbed the children by the hand, and began their way to her sister's cardboard house across town in the outskirts of Nuevo Laredo, right past the dreaded La Loma Jail. The fact that the neighborhood was controlled by narcos only made it safer than if the cops could still go in there. She knew they could wait out the storm safely there. I didn't eat well for days, and somehow I knew I would have that same feeling in the pit of my stomach for the rest of my life. A fear so intense, it made me throw up. The flood was the well-deserved wrath of God, I thought. The tale end of a tropical storm had swept from the Gulf across the Rio Grande Valley and it settled right above the sister cities, dumping 14 inches of rain in less than 24 hours. The river swelled and within minutes of the first heavy downpour, the river had overrun its banks, leaving the carnival in two or three feet of water, ponies, cotton candy, and all. The carnavaleros hadn't even had time to save the giant stuffed animals, which had become bottom heavy with water. Their bright colors ran into each other where they touched. And in the midst of the deluge, the two-headed baby, which had been sitting in a jar of formaldehyde on a wobbly wooden table, floated away out of the tent into the Rio Grande. After the floodwaters had receded, after the carnival people had had a chance to replace the carousel's twinkling light bulbs that had short-circuited and popped, 
After the giant surrealistic portrait of the two-headed baby had been taken down, she walked back into her cardboard shantytown house by the river to dredge the mud out of her two small rooms and see what was left. She screamed. The two-headed baby, still in its giant mayonnaise jar, was half buried in the muddy floor. She stared for a long time at the glass jar, tilted on its side in the mud, a ray of sunlight reflecting off the rounded top. Gringos barbaros, she said softly, knowing about the reward in the Mexican newspaper. She wiped the mud from the heavy glass jar with the hem of her old black skirt and cradled the jar awkwardly in her arms. She placed the baby on the rusty folding bed she and her children shared with her husband, a drunk who worked in the oil fields of Veracruz and who only came home once a year at Christmas. She was up to her ankles in mud. A big bamboo tree trunk had gotten jammed in her door, a bright pink plastic grocery bag caught on one end. She rolled up her sleeves, pulled up her skirt, tucked it in at the waist and began clearing the mud off the simple square of bricks that formed her hearth so she could light a fire to dry the place out. As she scraped the last bits of mud from the top of the bricks with a piece of river stick, she thought about what she could get for her children with a 500 American dollar reward. A clean, safe apartment, small but clean and safe, the, me the medicines for the little one's asthma, the shoes they so badly needed, a nice meal of cabrito and frijoles borrachos at la principal for everyone. In a rage, she got up and ran to the edge of the river, yelling across to the American side, I don't want your damn it baby money, over and over again until she stood there in a daze, hyperventilating in the hot sun and humidity. She walked back into the house, staring at the wet ground below her, mesmerized by the sun's bright light shining on the sandy bank. She knelt again in front of the hearth and began removing the bricks one by one and stacking them to the side. She was covered in sweat. The clouds had cleared and the sun now shining brightly again hit the tin roof and turned the hut into a steamy oven. She looked around the room for something to dig with. She found nothing, so she opened her tiny cupboard and grabbed a tin plate to use as a shovel. Back at the hearth, she started digging like a mad woman. She dug deep. In fact, she dug so deep that she had to lie flat on the ground, the hole in front of her, her arms barely able to reach the bottom to scrape out still more dirt. She got up and looked around for the plastic flowers she had found in a broken vase in the dumpster by the bridge a long time ago. She knew they were here somewhere. Unless, of course, the river had washed them away when it had turned over the little wooden table the broken vase and flowers had been sitting on. Bending down, she finally spotted them under the cupboard. She reached for them and sat down cross-legged on the mud. There, she wove the plastic flowers into a crown. She got up and balanced the heavy jar, holding the baby upright on the wet bed, then reached down the floor for the flower crown. She placed it around the lid of the jar and fastened it 
by tightening the wire. She stared at the baby for a while. Then she took the jar gently, set it down into the hole where she laid the baby to rest. Then she walked out to the river's edge with a cup in her hand, filled it with water, and walked back into the house, holding a dark, heavy riverbed rock in her other hand. Placing the cup of water by the hole, she lay down on the muddy floor again. She struck the jar once, and it broke exactly in half. The shock of formaldehyde struck her face. She fainted. A photo of the baby in a glass jar appeared in the newspaper a day later. In the back pages, next to hints from Heloise and your daily horoscopes, underneath the picture it read, $500 reward for the return of the two-headed baby. When I saw it, I ran to the bathroom and threw up. When she woke up, weak and pensive, she stared at the child in the broken jar for a long time. Finally, she reached down into the hole again and pulled the bottom half of the jar from under the baby's feet and slipped the top half over the baby's heads. She placed the jar next to the baby, sharp edges pushed into the soft ground so as not to hurt it, and placed the plastic flowers over the baby's heads like a crown. She sprinkled river water from the cup into the grave in the nombre del Padre, del Hijo y del Espíritu Santo. Still waking, she filled the grave with damp dirt, laid the bricks back in place, and covered them up with mud. On the next day, my dear Lalis and I stood on the bridge while the water flowed under us a couple of feet away from the rails. The ragged kids selling newspapers, dry mud caking their shoes, wailed out the news of the reward for the two-headed baby. One of them stuck a copy of the paper in my face. There he was again, in living color on the front page. I grabbed onto the edge of the bridge's rail, stood on the very tip of my toes, and locked my chin on the railing, my head over the side. And I threw up again into the waters of the Rio Grande. Somos de los dos laredos, estamos listos para el juego. Primer batazo ya nos miraron bien lejos. De la frontera donde todos gritan tecos. Tecos. 80 años en el terreno. Estamos listos para el juego. Primer batazo ya nos miraron bien lejos. De la frontera donde todos gritan tecos. Somos de los dos laredos, 
estamos listos para el juego Primer batazo ya nos miraron bien lejos De la frontera donde todos gritan tecos 80 años en el terreno Estamos listos para el juego Primer batazo ya nos miraron bien lejos De la frontera donde todos gritan tecos 80 años en el terreno Es una pasión, ganar base en nuestro don Tecos, tiro, trofón, brom Y a toda una tradición El rey de los dolaredos, el cinco veces campeón El único en el mundo entero Equipo con doble nación No es secreto para nada que Tecos en Bay despunta 80 años haciendo historia Y es un emblema la junta Junto con la nueva casa en Sinatra Park Away Número uno sede en Texas Nuestro estadio Unitray Con años de trayectoria, siempre impulsando el deporte En USA y Lepa al Sur, en México la zona norte, aquí no importa el país, somos uno en ambos lados. Si la va a jugar con tecos, seguro sale ponchado. Empezó el juego, ya bateo tecos y toda la porra servido. Una de grandes peloteros de Unitre, la junta se han vuelto su nido. Desde la primera hasta la novena, tecos domina el partido. Reyes de ambos laredos, nos divide el río y somos, somos bienvenidos. Estamos listos para el juego. Primer batazo, ya nos miraron bien lejos. De la frontera donde todos gritan tecos. 80 años en el terreno Estamos listos para el juego Primer batazo ya nos miraron bien lejos De la frontera donde todos gritan tecos 80 años en el terreno Dos naciones un equipo Tecolotes dos laredos Yao, yao, yao We are hanging out with Ito Romo, who has been kind enough to share an excerpt from one of his collection, one of his short stories from his collection, The Border is Burning. And we're celebrating a soft cover release. So that will form part of the Latino Bookstores Texas Authors Series, which in 2023, every second Friday of the month, you can expect a spectacular event. September 8th, Ito formed part of that, or will form part of that, depending on when you tune into this. And if you missed it, you can hear him read right now. What a wonderful reader. What a wonderful work. Can you imagine what that's like in person? I don't want you to think about it. I want you to experience it. Pero si te la perditas, no te pongas muy celoso o celosa. His books will be available at the Latino Bookstore, and you can go by during working hours. And I also want to Point out, you're experiencing Ito Romo reading from the borders burning on Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston's community station. And if you think we should consistently have our leading writers from our community, our thought leaders, folks that represent us, broadcast at 100,000 watts in the fourth largest city in America and everywhere else, then we need you to donate to KPFT by going to kpft.org or calling 713-526-5738. Ito, one, what a wonderful reading. And, and I, I remember when I got to hear it, I had a role in the reading. Yes, you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the part where, where, where she walks back, in, where the woman walks back into her house and she finds the baby and I say she screamed. Remember I asked you to, to scream. Uh, you know, it makes uh, uh, for a better reading, you know. Uh, I, I always, I think that uh, along with with writing, 
we're at a point in, 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 at least I'm at a point in my, I can't speak for others, I'm at a point in my life where I want to entertain those that have come to, to listen to me. If they've been kind enough to, to, to spend their time uh, listening to my work, I want to be able to read it the best I possibly can. And so sometimes I do little things like that. And you were kind enough to, uh, to yell uh, <laughs> more than me that day. It was a lot of fun. Which was a lot of fun. And I think you, you mentioned something fantastic is that I think even right here where if people are tuning in, they only have the benefit of hearing your voice. If they're watching the video version uh, on social media or, or when it airs live on different platforms, they get to see you, but you are performing it. You Absolutely. are. That's some of it. Es un don. Some of it's practice and some of it is learning. Yeah, I think so. But I think it's also part of a very important tradition. And that's a tradition of storytelling. Yeah. And um, I, I write the way I would tell a story. And so when I tell a story, I want to tell it like, like if my grandmother was telling it to me, right? With all the bells and whistles that that can possibly be used. And really, if I could, I'd, I'd like to have a show behind me, right? Of like a carnival going and all kinds of things. But I think that um, um, we are all so kind of pulled in so many different directions with social media that <clears throat> we have to do everything we can in order to, to, to help everybody tune in to what you have to say. And if that means um, putting on a show, then so be it. And I, I'll add to that. When you when you do read, it really is like I say. Show you've got charisma. You you engage folks. Estás animado, and there were a long list of folks that day, but were totally engaged. And I think, as you point out, it is it is entertaining. So I hope folks will take advantage of hearing that next dimension by getting to hear you read at anywhere that 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 your tour of this uh, soft cover edition of um, the Borders Burning may take you. Or perhaps they had a chance to enjoy uh, experiencing your work in person at the Latino Bookstore, which, which I hope they'll take us up on. And of course, this book is fundamental to uh, family libraries, uh, public libraries, and underground libraries. Born and raised in the heat, the eye, the sun. If you're too weak or sweet, you'll die in the sun. Hear the all the seats and ride in the trunk. We get the green by the tree, white by the ton. We receive the most from any inland port. So the other side is dying and trying to make us home. We don't shop from the business, we hustle and strong. Winning the border wars, you saw them episodes. We saw Texas, man, home of that black gold. When millionaires are made, digging a single hole. Depending on your profession, you don't feel this recession. But your heart is tested, that's why you don't mess with Texans. In Laredo, even women are tougher than nails. They talk loud and get down, protecting themselves. Respeta mi ciudad. This my city, mi ciudad, LDO. You gotta work to survive, this what we know. Faith, family, and strength is how we grow. I'll put you on my back and carry LDO. This my city, mi ciudad, LDO. You gotta work to survive, this what we know. Faith, family, and strength is how we grow. I'll put you on my back and carry LDO. I love my colors, man. This is for the raza. Con Emiliano Zapata tatuado en la espalda. I got brown pride. I'll never be a coconut. A real thoroughbred, homes and proudest. 
growing up in the city, I stop blowing up. You from the north, south, east, west, throw it up. We ain't divided, we got different personalities. But that's a family, and it makes me proud of being. De Laredo, orgullosamente. Te doy mi vida y el sudor de la frente. Mis lágrimas pa' toda mi gente. Es un homenaje del humilde Laredense. Mi ciudad tiene todo de lo bueno. Lo bonito, lo malo y lo chueco. Respeta mi ciudad, no te hagas del no es un juego, pierde los huevos en Laredo. This my city, mi ciudad, LDO. You gotta work to survive, this what we know. Faith, family, and strength, this how we grow. I'll put you on my back and carry LDO. This my city, mi ciudad, LDO. You gotta work to survive, this what we know. Faith, family, and strength, this how we grow. I'll put you on my back and carry LDO. Tengo raíces de dos países Donde el respeto se gana, no se pide Es la ciudad del trabajador Chueco derecho de sol a sol Dios bendiga a mi ciudad querida Que siempre progresemos es lo que yo pido Y no olvidemos de donde venimos This is a shout out to all my Laredo people From Santa Rita, cuatro vientos en Santo Niño Three points, Azteca 7 y el Chacón La ladrillera, las lomas en Ghost Town San José, los presidentes en Downtown Catarranas, Eastwoods, Hillside Del Mar, Plantation, Mines Road, Lakeside Respect my town, we don't around when it goes down so hold your ground or move around when you're in l town this my city miss you die ldo you gotta work to survive is what we know faith family and strength is how we grow i'll put you on my back and carry ldo this my city miss you die ldo you gotta work to survive is what we know faith family and strength is how we grow i'll put you on my back and carry ldo this my city miss you die ldo Gotta work to survive is what we know. Faith, family, and strength is how we grow. I'll put you on my back and carry LDO. This my city, miss you die, LDO. You gotta work to survive is what we know. Faith, family, and strength is how we grow. I'll put you on my back and carry LDO. Let's talk about this piece because in your collection, you do so much to bring quotidian issues to the table. Uh, but let's start with the metaphor, the border is burning, because this short story, very strong on its own, but at the same time to me, the title conveys urgency, but also survival. No, is that fair to say? For for the title of the book, The Border is Burning, um, uh, it, it's, so, so the story I, I read right now, um, <clears throat> Baby Money is, I, I, I like to read that, and it was the first story in the collection because it kind of is, is in between the old book, uh, the, my first book, uh, El Puente, and this book. So uh, uh, we grow as writers, yeah? And uh, there are some elements in this story that connect uh, me to my old work. But also, um, it mentions the bridge itself, the bridge between Los Dos Laredos. And that to me is a, a super important symbol for those of us that grew up on the border. The first book is uh, more like a fairy tale. There is still a lot of hope. Also, I think I was still kind of caught up in some of the old tropes of uh, Mexican-American writing. Um, and, and the new book 
I mean, th this book that came 10 years later, it takes me a long time to write, to write but uh, this book is a real departure from that kind of um, hope that existed. And I don't want to say that I've given up hope completely, but my family has lived, as, I, as, you, as you mentioned when you were uh, talking uh, uh, about my history, uh, on, on the border for a very, very long time. And um, we, my family has been crossing that border for hundreds of years. Mm. And all of a sudden, when, when all the problems started happening with the narcotrafico on the Mexican side, we stopped crossing that border. And I, I think that some of my family have started going back now, like I, my sister mentioned, and that she and my brother-in-law went for a party for one that they had been invited to. But I haven't crossed that border in years. And it was such, um, such a loss, yeah? Because that has been a community. Listen, uh, education in Laredo was uh, started by an edict of the King of Spain. That's how old that city is, yeah? And when the problems started, that city, which had been together for such a long time, one, I mean, all, half my friends in high school came from the Mexican side, yeah? And, and it, it was one big community. And when everything started, that community split. And there was, you know, people just didn't go across the border anymore. So there was an urgency in this book about the burning of it, then it's not literal, but it is literal. It's not as bad as it used to be anymore, but there is there has been a real break in uh, in this in the system that connected those two cities. And and an interesting point, my um, which is connected to this, uh, and you can shut me up whenever you feel I've been. No, talking but, yeah. but but like uh, the book in German is called uh, Der Duft de Mulberry, and uh, I, I wondered why they wouldn't call it the bridge, just translate it, the bridge, because that's the title in English, El Puente. And my European public, my, my German publisher said, because bridges in the United States do not work like bridges in Europe. Bridges in Europe unite. Mm. Bridges in the United States separate. Wow. Yeah. So long answer to your question. No, no, not, not at all. Because I, I think um, I think your work you, you write with such precise prose, quotidian, beautiful metaphors, sharp. You can picture it, but you can also get that sense of the depth. So I appreciate you adding to that because the work we can just take it straight on. Like you say, it's entertaining. You know, it's beautiful, but also gritty. No, it's como. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's um, real. I mean, that's it. when I was writing this book, I, I uh, you know, I, I wanted to do a couple of things. I wanted to, I, I always say I wanted to kill the abuelita. And, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but I wanted to, to write away from all of those things that, that had been, you know, keeping us down as Latino writers, as Mexican American writers, where everybody had these expectations that that all Latino, that all Mexican American writers had to write about their grandmother, uh, right, the abuelita, and had to write about you know making tortillas and all that kind of stuff. And and so I purposely wrote away from that. Does that does that make sense? No, no, by all means. And, yeah. and I think you're defying. Um, just just for some listeners, I I would argue that. New York corporate publishing reduces us to generalizations, 
myths and stereotypes that you're touching on. Absolutely. And, and how, how does a, a writer like yourself break through that? And I think I think you've done that. Fantastic. I, I hope I have. Yeah. And and more than anything. Um, I believe in, in this kind of a, a new sort of Mexican-American realism, yeah? A, mm. pl- uh, a, a kind of writing that, that really tells it like it is mm. without um, downgrading individuals who's really showing comp- the compassion necessary because people are born to the places where they're born. They don't have the choice as to where they're going to be born or the conditions that they're born into. And so I think it's super important that if we're going to do anything as Latinos, as Mexican-Americans for our, for our own culture, it's first to face the reality of what's out there. And I think that this book was my attempt to show that reality to everybody. And you do it in a very unflinching way, but also very sophisticated. So, for example, um, I love uh, you mentioned the, the braiding of the two stories, because even there you've got someone leaning into what they're looking at and someone else repulsed by it. And I mean, whoever wants to get a PhD in Itoromo studies right there, <laughs> you got, you got a lot to, to work with, even from like, uh, you know, someone might say, Hey, as Chicanos, what do we look back on? And, and, you know, we, we, we can't stand about ourselves or community. On the other hand, what do we run past to survive? Uh, what do we defy? Uh, do I get an A, a B? What more? <laughs> <laughs> that that story is an interesting story. It came from uh, you know I, we my family lived very close to the international bridge, a block away from the international bridge. And when I was a kid, the carnival would actually uh, uh, the carnival was right along the edge, right by the river between uh, on the American side, right. But it was right there. We would just go walking. All my friends would come to meet us at my house and would go walking to the carnival. So the carnival was very real to me. It it was something that, that I went to every year, almost all my life. Um, Then the other story was the story of shanty towns on the Mexican side, right. And the reality of, um, of life for a great deal of people who live on the border and not just in Laredo, but all the way down, right? All the way down uh, to Brownsville where there are colonias. I think they're better now, but for a long time there were colonias that were, uh, that didn't have uh, even public uh, uh, drainage, right? Like uh, there were no sewers, there was nothing like that. And people living in, in terrible, terrible conditions. And so I wanted to, in one way or another, kind of tie those two worlds together, right? someone who was looking at them from a considerable kind of like uh, born into a particular family and place, right? But then being able to, to see what was happening uh, on the other side. We are chatting with Ito Romo. He has shared some of his, uh, uh, an excerpt from a short story in The Border is Burning. We're about to hear uh, another uh, reading from the collection. And you will get to meet him in person, get your copy signed as we celebrate the soft cover release of The Border is Burning that will form part of the Texas Author Series at the Latino Bookstore at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center. The big events go on every second Friday of the month in 2023, Friday, September 8th at 6 p.m.
vidas las han cambiado No solamente en hazañas porque sería criminal Decir que no se lucieron en esta guerra mundial except on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston's Community Station, can you hear one of our leading writers on primetime broadcast across the fourth largest in America, doing all of us proud, nowhere else but 90.1 FM, KPFT. Uh, Ito, if you would be kind enough to, to read another excerpt for us, por favorcito. Absolutely, yeah. <clears throat> Again, this is from my collection of short stories called The Border is Burning. And this particular story is about a white woman living in a brown world. It's called Redhead. <clears throat> Her hair caught fire years ago, Christmas time, as she bent over to light a cigarette on the gas stove one night, stinking drunk. It never grew back right after that, patchy and frizzy and uncontrollable. So she shaved her head with disposable Bic razors in the shower every other morning. 
Since she could choose the, her hair color now, she wore a red wig of real human hair she'd found for $35 at the Goodwill store. It had been combed semi-professionally by women from Goodwill's back-to-work program. When she'd first seen it, she held it up in front of her and scrutinized it carefully. Her eyes, her eyesight already beginning to go from older age. Then she slipped it on and stared at herself in the mirror. One of the girls working close to the counter was cleaning out an old chest of drawers someone had donated. She looked at her and said, that's real nice, ma'am, real nice. Two years later, she wore it still, though now it was uncombed and wild, kind of like the fire. She didn't quit smoking. In fact, she sucked on those cigarettes even more now. Had to have one pack within reach, another waiting in the freezer, always. And this was where she was headed determinately early that morning to buy cigarettes at the corner store. And a tall boy. These damn cigarettes are going to kill me, Johnny. Don't know why you keep selling them to me, she said to the man behind the counter as she popped the beer can open. He smiled, grinned, then chuckled a bit and pointed to the old yellow state of Texas note notice tacked to the wall behind him. Now, Matilda, you know you can't drink that in here. Then he broke out into an outright laugh. That's when she saw herself in the round mirror positioned at an angle above the man's head so, she could, so he could see behind him when he turned his back. She had forgotten to put on her wig. He regained his composure, not sure how he'd re she'd react to his laughter. It's not those cigarettes that, that are going to kill you, Matilda, he chuckled. It's that beer. What are you staring at? She asked gruffly, placing the exact amount she paid every morning. Seven wrinkled dollar bills wrapped around 47 cents change on the counter. You keep staring at me and I'm going to cross the interstate and go buy my cigarettes at the Walmart and probably get hit by an 18-wheeler while crossing. That'll teach you, make you feel guilty for laughing at a poor, old, bald woman, huh? She said and stormed out the store. An electric bell chimed behind her. Two years ago, she turned 60. Then she lost her job. Then she was too old to get another. She used up what she'd saved from working for years without benefits at Woolco, then at the Walmart that had taken its place, the very same Walmart she threatened to take her business to. They'd always managed to schedule her hours just short of qualifying for benefits. Not much you can save on minimum wage. When, she finally, when she'd finally gone through that in a little over a year, her neighbors the old woman, Sofia, who lived with her sister, Minerva, down the street. The Saldana family, who went away half the year to work the canning season in Blue Island near Chicago. And the Rodriguez family, who had welcomed her into the garage apartment they'd fixed up to make some extra money from rent. They all had taken care of her, bringing tacos and egg sandwiches and leftovers and tamales at Christmas until she started drinking and stopped eating much. It's curious that she started drinking at such an age, Mrs. Rodriguez whispered to her husband, especially since she never drank before, you know? 
She told me she never really cared for the bulls. She'd said that one day when they had to help her get into the apartment after Matilda thought she'd misplaced her keys. Turns out the keys were in her bosom, wrapped in some crumpled dollar bills. They fell out when she almost fell over and Mr. Rodriguez caught her in one hand and the keys with the other. At 61 years of age, Matilda Morton resorted to twirling a baton she'd found outside St. Peter's Memorial School on a night when she'd been so drunk she'd lost her way back from drinking on the Mexican side. It was cheaper there. She did this for about a week, stood on the side of a main road leading to the interstate, far away on the north side of town, two bus transfers from her apartment to make sure no one in her neighborhood knew. She imagined herself in school, back in school, however many years ago it had been, when she'd been a cheerleader in Lytle, Texas, just south of San Antonio. She found she was still really good at it, or so she thought. She rolled her sleeves as far up her arm as possible to throw that baton up into the heavens and attempt to catch it. People honked and whistled and jeered and threw money. She didn't belong here, here in the sea of Mexican people, where her pink skin now sagged red under each arm as she tossed the baton from one hand to the other. Was she really remembering her youth? Did someone tell her, hey, Matilda, if you're going to make any money here, you need some kind of trick, a show, like the fire eaters on the Mexican side. If you're going to make it here, you got to have something good enough to make them roll down their windows in this heat long enough to toss you a coin. You've got to make it worth the air conditioning they lose when they do. But she made almost $20 her first day and more the second and the third and the entire week until a bus driver friend of Mr. Rodriguez told him he thought he recognized a woman who lived in the garage apartment twirling a baton on the side of the road. They jumped in the car, found her, and forced her in. She was woozy and dehydrated. The dangling flesh of her arms sunburned as red as the wig slightly off to the side of her head. Mrs. Rodriguez cried. Why, honey, why you cry? What you crying for? Matilda asked, then closed her eyes and fell asleep in the back seat. Red flesh pulsing, something awful. Thank God, a month or so later, she turned 62 and filed for Social Security. Now she spent most of the time at home, drunk, watching TV, except when she took the short walk to the corner grocery store or when she took the trash out every three or four days or when she went to the bank downtown to cash her Social Security check. And so it had been that day. She went back to her little apartment, adjusted the wig on her head as she looked into the blotchy mirror in the bathroom and cursed Johnny for laughing at her. She walked to her bed and reached between the mattress and the box spring for the check, which had come in the mail just yesterday. She folded the check, still in its envelope, and slipped it into the hollow of her bra.
sale al ruedo cuando se trata de trabajar El meme le apodaron traficando lo ilegal Si piensan que encerrado me van a poder parar No saben la escuela que agarro actual y suel pensar Si me regresan me retorno motivos tendré una princesa que me espera que tanto amaré No quise darle mala vida, mejor me chingué Tengo un equipo organizado que sabe qué hacer Un tiempo entré a la construcción pero no la libré La verdad ganaba muy poco y de todo me harté Ahora entre el tráfico de humanos me empecé a mover Y a las vacas son de 100 dólares miles me gané La adrenalina al pegar Es algo incomparable André una llamada me ha de contentar y la verdad no está pelada en la vida real El negro, Elisa y el Juan, pura confianza me de navegar Se la rifan por todas las 59, con freno de manos si hay que levantar Y es el Charlie viejo, que le va a meme Controlando el monte Gerardo bien pilas está Mientras el gallo me levanta también le de entrar De Laredo hasta San Antonio nervios no hay mi pa A la orden mi padrino Poncho gracias por confiar En un SRT si me dan ganas de quemar Un carelac pa' andar a gusto con un blon fumar Persecuciones me ha aventado y no miré para atrás Poco a poco los fui perdiendo y de nuevo a jalar Moviéndola en el 956 pa' todos hay No hay falla, aquí te los pegamos, hincho el viaje va La verdad no diré mi nombre, me apodo nomás El meme de Laredo, Texas, más claro no está Sigue la línea con más Bajo la sombra pero un rato y ya Si me engancharon voy a triplicar En las piezas y pa' los traidores los voy a cazar La luna ya se Salen los carros sobre la labor Para cruzar bien estudiado estoy Me me la seguirá rifando primero mi Dios We are listening to Ito Romo share an excerpt from his collection of short stories, The Border is Burning, and we are celebrating the soft cover edition, which will form part of the Texas Author Series at the Latino Bookstore at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center, and that particular date will be the second Friday in September, September 8th. If you do miss it, don't be too sad because that means you found out about the book. You got to hear Ito read today and you can stop by any day during business hours and there will be copies of Ito's book. And of course, I want to give a shout out to 90.1 FM KPFT, Houston's Community Station, because we get to broadcast one of our leading intellectuals at 100,000 watts. And if you think that's a good thing, you need to call in and support 
KPFT in the name of Nuestra Palabra. And you can do that by visiting kpft.org or calling 713-526-5738. Ito, wonderful to hear you read. And of course, even, you, you know, um, powerful short story, great quotidian language. Um, but even the metaphor of the red hair ties into the whole, the, the border is burning. Um, her hair caught fire, yeah. Her hair, fire. her hair caught fire también. Are those touches that you thread through later or was it something that you wanted to to push uh, early so, on in the creation of that story? In, in this particular collection, the one thread that I did make sure I went back and threaded through was the connection to the interstate. So you'll hear the interstate being mentioned in, 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 <clears throat> in all of the stories in one way or another, right? Um, you know, the bridge uh, leads to IH-35, which goes, I guess, all the way to Chicago. Or, I mean, it goes, it's one of the longest ones in the United States. Um, but, but that particular story, I mean, I always tell my students when they say, where do your stories come from, right? Um, this particular story and the burning of the hair comes from a very personal story. And it's uh, my grandmother, uh, Carlota, um, who, lived in the, who lived, we lived in her house, actually, uh, downtown Laredo. Um, and, and every, she had a twin sister and her, her twin sister, Dalila, uh, lived in Robstown. They were both teachers. I mean, she was, uh, uh, Dalila was a teacher and she would come visit my grandmother, right? And she would stay with my grandmother and I would walk to my grandmother's part of the house. And sometimes in the evening, cause my tia Lila always had her hair up in a bun, super old school, right? And it was white. They were already older. But one time I walked in on them and she had let her hair down and she was brushing it out. And it was amazing to me as a kid to see her really, really long hair, I mean, almost to her waist, and all white, really, really beautiful. And it, 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 it's, it uh, stayed in my head. And then later, many, many years later, when I was in college, um, I got a phone call from one, from one of, I don't know, my brothers, or one of my brothers or sisters. I have three brothers and two sisters, by the way. Um, and uh, I got a phone call that Lila had been in her kitchen and she did the same thing my grandmother did. I don't know who else used to do this, but they had gas stoves, right? And they'd light the gas stove and then go looking for the matches, right? And then come back and light it. And her hair caught fire. Yeah. And um, uh, she, she had some burns, but it, 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 she wasn't seriously burned, but she had lost all that hair. And, and it was such a, just such a powerful thing that I, I could never shake that image. Even though I never saw it happen, I just couldn't shake that image of her hair on fire. But then in order to write real fiction, I can't write stories about real things in my life because then it's not fiction anymore, right? So what I always do is I take an, a, a picture that I have in my head like that and I write away from the original character. So my tia Lila was not an alcoholic. My tia Lila was nothing, was a, 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 a Chicana, I mean, a Mexican, yeah, Chicana, Mexican-American from the border who'd come from many generations of people from the border. So a completely, I, I, I wrote away from the original. And so the farthest away I could get was, would be to make her a white woman from Lytle, Texas. Yeah. And so, yes, uh, I guess, I go back and emphasize some things like maybe I spent more time emphasizing the burning of the hair than I typically might've done or spent more time talking about that kind of loss uh, to, to, do, to make that connection that you were suggesting in that the idea that the border is burning. Fantastic. And we're gonna pique people's interest and we're gonna titillate them and encourage them to, 
to experience a reading by Ito Romo in person. And we really look forward to celebrating you at the Latino Bookstore. Thank you so much for joining us on Nuestra Palabra. We wish you continued success, my dear friend. And I cannot wait to hang out with you at the Latino Bookstore and celebrate the, the latest uh, version, uh, the soft cover version of, of uh, The Border is Burning. So uh, thank you so much for joining us, my friend. Thank you, Tony. Thank you very much. Looking forward to seeing you then. Peace and love. And of course, you've been experiencing Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. I want to thank the entire crew that helps convey this show. Rodrigo Bravo is our sound engineer, and he goes above and beyond the call of duty to make sure that this show is edited, is organized, and conveyed. I also want to thank Roxana Guzman, who's our multi-platform producer. I want to thank the whole Nuestra Palabra team, all of our listeners. And of course, we hope that you will support KPFT 90.1 FM by going to kpft.org or calling 713-526-5738. I'm Tony Diaz, Alibu Traficante, and we look forward to seeing you behind the book. Gracias. Dice basta ya, porque nada de eso te puede elevar